The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you very much. It's good to be back in the Philadelphia area. I was born in Bryn Mawr Hospital, about 30 miles from here, and grew up um, in this area. My oldest sister, I'm one of seven, um, attended a predecessor of this school, Philadelphia College of the Bible, back in the 70s. So I have a lot of roots in this area. But being in an academic setting like this reminds me of a story I heard about a class that had been studying uh, birds. They'd been studying these birds for several weeks and everything you could possibly learn and study about birds, their migration habits, their mating habits, their feathers, and uh, everything about birds. And the day came for this test on this section of the semester. Uh, The students walked in and sat down. They were passed out a the test paper, which was just a single sheet of paper with 10 pictures only showing birds' feet. There was a line under each picture, and the professor said, identify each bird on the line, and you can turn in your paper, you're free to go. Just as the professor said that, a student at the back of the room pounded his fist on his desk. He said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. He took his test paper, wadded it up in a ball, threw it at the trash can in the corner of the room, and got up headed for the door. Just as he got to the door, the professor said, young man, what's your name? That, that student pulled off his socks and shoes, pulled up his pant legs. He said, here, teacher, if you're so smart, you tell me. <laughs> I want to uh, first affirm those of you pursuing a Christian education and those of you providing it. I'm a product of Christian education, uh, K through 10th grade and Christian college. My siblings all are products of Christian education. Our three children went to Christian school K through 12, and now our grandchildren are in Christian schools in Georgia. I don't know of anything more important, and I applaud you, and here I am still attending chapel at age 61. I feel like I've had the greatest job in the world since I graduated from college. I've advised and done public relations for many of the great Christian leaders, organizations, and causes in the world for nearly 40 years. But I've also seen the underbelly of Christianity and evangelicalism, the flaws, the warts, the hypocrisy, the scandals. I keep a list of names on my phone that records an ugly side of my career in public relations. I keep this list because it strengthens my resolve to finish well. For these are names of Christian leaders who didn't finish well. Not random names of friends or people in the news. That list would be much longer. But leaders I knew and worked with closely. Most were pastors. Some led large global ministries. Together they presided over annual budgets in excess of $2 billion. These men affected millions of lives. This list, along with turning 60 last year has had me thinking a lot about finishing well, which is the subject of my talk. Now, finishing well may seem like an odd topic, both for college students and also near the beginning of an academic year rather than the end. But that's part of the point today. I hope to change your thinking about finishing well. I believe most people think the subject of finishing well is for people near the end of their lives, for older people. 
To think of finishing well in terms of a 60 or 70 or 80 year arc is daunting, even demoralizing. Who has that kind of discipline and staying power? That's why I came up with a definition I like of finishing well that seems much more attainable. I would define finishing well as living well until you're finished living. You see, none of us knows when we're finished, where our finish line is. My father's finish line came at 53 when he had a heart attack playing tennis just 30 miles from here. Seven years later, my 22-year-old brother reached his finish line when he was killed in a car accident, also not far from here. So living well until you're finished living is really the only meaningful definition of finishing well. Because of two early deaths in my family and because of what I've seen in my PR career, the desire to finish well has become something of a passion of mine. This passion became more of an obsession recently when I noticed a verse that shook me. Though I've read through the New Testament nearly three times a year for 30 years, this verse in John jumped off the page as if I'd never seen it before. John 6:66 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. John Piper says the sixth chapter of John begins with 5,000 men following Jesus, and it ends with 11. That's a lot of casualties. How is that possible? These people who quit on Jesus, who didn't finish well, had walked with him. They'd seen him do miracles. Just the day before, he'd fed 5,000 in their presence. They didn't just physically leave Jesus' side. They rejected his teaching in exchange for what they'd had before. In the next verse, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples still with him and asks, do you also want to go away? Even among that group closest to him, one would soon literally betray him to his executioners. How tragic and how sad, but how this should shake us. I offer this look at finishing well, not with righteous judgment, I pray, but with a healthy fear rooted in years of sobering observation. My work, my professional career, brought me to the crash scenes of some high-level leaders who veered off course in their personal lives, their marriages, their families, their professions. Public ministry became public disasters. Private lives became public spectacles. The sweep of the collateral damage is impossible to measure. Half the disasters were in churches among the largest in the country. Many of the casualties were men I had admired, some I had known more than half my life. Too often I was called upon to help the leader, the church, the ministry, navigate ridicule and gossip from the next office or explosive headlines around the world. Hurt and rage gushed from the televised church meetings and hemorrhaged across social media. Friends were stunned, families devastated, staff members disillusioned and angry, reporters were gleeful. Each time, believers everywhere staggered from the blow to Christianity and sometimes to their own faith, while the secular world sneered and called it hypocrisy again. Now, while only God can see into men's hearts, I saw enough to begin to recognize at least some top-line warning signs in a leader's life or a person's life, for that matter, 
that can hinder a healthy finish. I'll offer nine common denominators in people who didn't finish well. One, invariably, these people have a sense of invincibility, as if the rules are for other people. And I, I think, too, the more successful we are, the wealthier we are, the more entrenched we can become in our own sense of invincibility. Secondly, without exception, the men on my list failed to have guardrails in their lives, which is further proof that they thought they were invincible. Just two specific guardrails, avoiding being alone with a woman, not your wife, and avoiding alcohol, would have forestalled disaster for at least two-thirds of the men on this list. Thirdly, they were great at rationalizing. Rationalizing what? Everything. Then, they generally rejected authority and accountability in their lives. Fifth, most, most of these people lacked common sense and good instincts to avoid even the appearance of impropriety. Then pride and arrogance increasingly crept in, dominated and showed. Seventh, these men believed their personal lives were no one's business. Invariably, they had a sense of entitlement. And finally, all of them demonstrated bad judgment. Now, certainly there are cases when a diminished leader arguably did not sin. But a day comes when that point is no longer the point. Because what's not up for argument, what's irrefutable, I think, is that in every case, the leader in question showed poor judgment, a lack of wisdom. One doesn't have to be guilty of sin to do something stupid or fatal. And by the way, moral failures aren't the only impediments to finishing well. You can pour your life into serving God and fail miserably in your family or other areas. I'll share one example by name since he's dead and his daughter has written about it. Bob Pierce founded World Vision and Samaritan's Purse, two of the largest Christian humanitarian organizations in the world. Early on in his ministry, he said he made an agreement with God. He said he told God, I'll take care of his helpless little lambs overseas if he'll take care of mine at home. That's not a deal God makes, by the way. One of his two daughters wrote in a biography of her dad, quote, he traveled 10 months a year, which made it difficult. My parents' marriage suffered. My father's health was broken. My sister and I barely knew our father. Christianity Today wrote this account. In 1963, he had a nervous breakdown. For nine months, he almost disappeared, preferring to travel the world than return home. In 1967, he resigned from World Vision, bitter at those he felt interfered with his ministry. On a 1968 goodbye tour of Asia, one daughter reached him by phone to ask if he could come home. He refused, saying he wanted to extend his trip to Vietnam. His wife started home immediately, but by the time she arrived, the daughter had tried to commit suicide. Later that year, she tried again and succeeded. By then, her father was hospitalized in Switzerland, where he would stay for a year. In 1970, this is Christianity Today still writing, Pierce legally separated from his wife. In 1978, the family met for an evening to try to reconcile. Four days later, Bob Pierce was dead. 25 years after his death, the magazine called Pierce an imperfect instrument, which of course describes every one of us. 
I'm glad God uses broken vessels. But if I'm ignorant of my brokenness, I'm of limited use to anyone. So this message is not about perfection. It's about maturing in God's grace, about moving forward in our humanness and in his holiness in the race set before us. For those of us who feel we may have already blown it, C.S. Lewis offers this hope. Quote, you, can go back and, you can't go back and change the beginning, Lewis said, but you can start where you are and change the ending. I'm preaching to myself here as much as anyone. After all, I haven't finished living yet. We all come to moments with our names on them, situations that can send us flying and crashing headfirst. As we gain wisdom, as we more quickly recognize our humanness and blind spots and learn to plan against them, maybe we can avoid some of the pitfalls between us and our finish line. By the way, as with King David, fallen and wounded leaders can and often do resume productive work and ministry, but always at a cost and seldom at the previous level of influence. I literally cannot cite three exceptions to this statement. When the news of another leader's fall reverberates through the media sphere, a common reaction is to resist judging. There but for the grace of God go I, someone will say. And it's true again that we are all prone to sin. The words, but for the grace of God, suggest, however, that we are somehow helpless, which we are not. We have agency. In our marathon runs called life, God's grace is essential and life-giving. But I largely determine what affects my pace and distance. To rely solely on God to protect me from myself is to discharge all responsibility for my outcomes. If you heard that a drunk driver sped 100 miles an hour down the wrong side of the road at 3 a.m. and killed five people in an oncoming van, you wouldn't say, there but for the grace of God, go I. Why? Because the driver chose to drink. He chose to stay out well past midnight when thinking blurs and defenses slip. Before the first drink, he chose whether or not to hand off his car keys. To a great degree, we choose when and where to test God's grace. Another common response, usually as a vote to forgive and restore or to excuse a fallen leader, is to bring up the king in the Bible who slept with a military officer's wife and then had him sent to the front lines for certain death. Look at David, someone will say. He was a man after God's own heart. To be clear, David was not after God's heart the day he had Bathsheba brought to his bedroom. That description of David was used 45 years earlier by the prophet Samuel when David was just 12 years old and marked by God as a future king of Israel. 1 Samuel records, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his heart, Samuel said to Saul. Now, no one ever finished well by accident. Of that, I'm certain. I carry a far longer list, this one in my heart, of men and women who have finished the race or continue to inspire me by running with integrity and an appropriate fear of the Lord. So what are some common denominators of those who do finish well? I'll offer seven. 
Men and women who finish well are almost always humble people. They don't believe the world revolves around them. Secondly, these people don't just accept authority and accountability in their lives. They seek it, embrace it, and insist on it. Third, strong finishers tend to place a premium on prudence. Being wise or judicious in practical affairs, discreet or circumspect. In other words, they're fully aware of their humanness. Fourth, invariably the men and women I know who are living well and or have finished well have employed guardrails in their lives. While not infallible, given our human natures, these protections serve as a hedge against all kinds of trouble. I could chart the correlation between wisdom and guardrails. One of the most successful Christian leaders I know, the leader in his field by one ranking, told me of the level of protective measures he has established in his life, voluntarily, guardrails. He has the passwords to none of his devices or apps. If he did a Google search for hot air balloons, it would be rejected based on the first word. His office always knows his whereabouts, as does God, by the way, thanks to a tracking system. They also see all his credit card expenses in real time. My friend is determined to live well until he's finished living. And while I suppose he could beat the system that he and others have devised for his own good, he's at least made it harder to stumble in a weak moment than the man or woman who's leaving their reputation to chance. Now, I'm not unaware that most of you and nearly all of society will think these kinds of guardrails to be a bit draconian. And they are in 2023 America. But I assure you, if applied with integrity, they will protect your reputation, your marriage, your family, your career, and your Christian witness. Fifth, those who finish well routinely apply the wisdom test. These people don't approach a challenging decision and ask, is it legal or moral or ethical? But is it wise? What's the wise thing to do? Then these people who finish well factor in their fallibilities and counter their human natures with spiritual disciplines like regular scripture reading and prayer. Alistair Begg, the 71-year-old Scottish pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio for 40 years, recently told a group that prayer consumes more time in their elders' meeting than does their agenda. I believe Proverbs is the gold standard for preventive wisdom. It's been my practice to read a chapter of Proverbs every day for most of my adult life, which means I'll read this entire wisdom textbook every month 12 times a year. Um, one morning I was um, getting ready and uh, having my quiet time and I was had just started to read and April was getting ready, running a little bit late. And she said, uh, read me whatever you're reading. And I looked at the subheading on the chapter of Proverbs I was about to read and I said, it's about the crafty harlot. Do you still want to hear it? <laughs> no, she said, but I want you to hear it. Go ahead. When uh, our son, we have two, two daughters and a son, when our son was graduating from high school, 
I had given him, uh, I'd put a note on his bed the night before his graduation, thanking him for being a great son and for his career in school as he headed off for college. The next morning, he had put a note on my desk at home thanking me for my letter. But he wrote a PS that I'll never forget. He said, Dad, I've read Proverbs every day since eighth grade because of you. And I hadn't known he was doing it. So my son, who's now 32, has read the book of Proverbs 200 plus times. And I like his chances for finishing well. I can't say that reading this book every day will guarantee that you finish well. But I can promise you that not doing it increases the odds that you won't. Seventh, these people that finish well have a healthy fear of not finishing well and bringing reproach on the name of Christ. When God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin with Bathsheba, he pronounced four consequences concluding with these words, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child born to you shall surely die. We seem to have lost this fear. In recent times, a number of fallen Christian leaders have even broadcast their failures by participating in TV documentaries on Netflix or Hulu or elsewhere. No fear. So if the key to finishing well is living well until you're finished living, what's really the key? One word, I think. I think the key to finishing well is today, which really could have been the title of this talk. Forever is too long, too far away. Tomorrow holds no guarantees. I can't presume that I'll live well until the end but I can live well today. I can't be faithful to my wife forever if I'm not faithful to her today. I can't swear to sobriety for all my days, but I can decline to drink today. I can't assume I'll always be the father I should be, but I'm pretty sure I can love my children well today. I don't know if I can master my tongue forever, but I can guard it today. I can't be in God's word every day until my end if I didn't read it this morning, today. Each of you can study well, teach well, live well today. All we have ever really is today. In the New Testament, Timothy writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Only history will ultimately tell if this could be said of you or of me. None of us in this room has finished our race. But we can run well today. We can fight the good fight today. We can keep the faith today. May it be true today. Let me pray. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. God bless you.